Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, the internet, uh games, the law, NFTs, all kinds of um, stuff um, that um, we thoroughly recommend you squeeze in between 7 and 8 on a Wednesday night. Uh, and tonight on the show, uh, we're joined by Ro. Ro, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, Warren? Good. You had uh, a good feel of dogs uh, today, but also um, technology this week. How, how's it been for you? It's been marvellously inconsequential. It's always a great week when you kind of don't notice that it. it just adds value to your life. Nothing breaks, nothing crashes, and you can move on. Nice. Uh, also, Dan Salmon, um, have you had a, a good week in tech? I've had a similar week in tech. Just everything just happened. There were no, no, nothing amazed nice. me. Nothing destroyed me. It was just you know a, a, a nice week in tech. Nice. But also, I have to say, well done on Sunday. You you were magnificent for the megahertz, Warren. Um, how, how did you pull up afterwards? Not too bad. Um, yeah, no, I was I was uh, unscathed. Um, there was a um, what, what I thought was a concussion um, in the rooms, but um, one of our players did actually get a, an errant elbow and had a fractured eye socket, nose, and cheekbone, um, and, a, and a pinch nerve. But uh, fortunately, he hasn't. Um, he, he doesn't need surgery. So, Jordan, if you're listening out there, um, all the megas are thinking of you. But, oh, Jordan, get well the, soon. And That's the rest horrendous. of us, yeah, mate. <laughs> Mm. But um, yeah, it was a good it was a good uh, good win on the weekend, back to back for the Megas and uh, boo to the Rock Dogs. <laughs> boo to the Rock Dogs. Um, I should have made my cup of tea in the in the cup. Uh, it's out there. Maybe we've got time later on to, <laughs> to go back and do something about that. But um, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Uh, we have got a, uh, a, a an interesting show lined up. Um, last week in California, a, a senior software engineer flagged one of the platform's chatbots uh, at Google had uh, achieved sentience or um, consciousness of, of some kind. Uh, or another and it did make news around the world and the engineer has uh, since been put on uh, paid leave until it um, blows over I, I imagine but um, is sentience the thing that we should be focused on when it comes to um, artificial intelligence and uh, to poke that bear we'll be joined on the show by ethicist and philosopher uh, Simon Coglin of University of Melbourne um, a little bit uh, well in just a few minutes uh, also a, a new scheme for Centrelink um, PBAS, um, there's probably a better way to say it, um, will commence on the 4th of July, just around the corner. Uh, Tess O'Brien and Daniel Levi, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, uh, will drop in to have a chat with us later on the show about that one. But before then, there is uh, stuff and things, things and stuff going on. Um, Dan, you have one eye on Queensland, as, as always. As um, always. What's going on up there? It's warm up there. No, look, it, it, it's um, in other states, it happens to be uh, state budget with season. Um, Queensland's was yesterday and New South Wales's was today. In the Queensland budget, they have announced that they're wanting to be a hydrogen and new economy minerals powerhouse which um, I think is, is code for we want to mine things that aren't coal, but we still want to mine things. Um, We've got all this stuff hanging around, all yeah, these people that know what to do. That's exactly it. We, 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 we've got we to replace our high fossil fuel economy jobs with jobs that are similar but are not for high fossil fuels, hence um, uh, creating various hydrogen opportunities as well as uh, digging up the, the things that are required for um, the chips in your phone, for example. Or, and and this, is, this is an ongoing kind of, I suppose, tension in that we need 
to electrify the, the planet in order to stop climate, climate change. But at the same time, electrifying the planet involves exploiting minerals that aren't necessarily there at the moment. Like, we can, you know, if we're, if we're looking at everyone in the world having, you know, all the access to everything that we want them to have access to, there is not currently enough copper, for example. There is mm. not enough zircon. There is not enough rare earth minerals. Um, if, even if we recycled everything that's been recycled, it's, it's arguable that there's probably not enough. So, look, it's it's, it's an interesting space to be in. I, I, it's, it certainly seems like the Queensland government is just kind of going pie in the sky. Let's, let's, let's uh, do technology and do it great and uh, think about it in five years. Yep, and, you know, they're flinging a whole heap of money. $48 million has been um, tossed at it just for hydrogen projects, which are likely to be first used for public transport projects like hydrogen ferries. So I guess they're putting their money where their mouth is a little bit, and it'll mm. be really interesting to see how it rolls out. Absolutely, absolutely. We might have to go back to the old uh, bath roster of days gone by. <laughs> like, not everyone gets everything they need all of the time. Um, I, I can't see that um, working. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that people will be happy with that. Um, <laughs> there has also been stuff going on in New South Wales of a similar ilk, money being thrown around, I understand, Ro. Absolutely. So it's clearly state budget season at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, so the New South Wales government has set aside $38 million in its state budget for a little bit of an EV push, the good old electric vehicle. So they've broken this down into three main sections. So basically $10 million bucks is going to go towards co-funding 500 curbside charge points for every punter to just roll up and plug into. $10 million is going towards co-funding around 125 um, apartment buildings that have got more than 100 parking spots. So let's get a bunch of charge stations in there and get that happening. And then $18 million is going to go towards fast charging grants um, to speed up that fast charger rollout in the state. Um, and one thing that's really interesting is... Um, the term that I used in those first two points, co-funding. Mm. All of them require investment from other organisations. So if a giant supermarket or fuel chain goes, oh, yes, we'll have 50 of those, they've got to pay for half of them and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the, the grants, they are straight up going to be handing out blocks of cash for other companies to install them. So it's still not a pure play New South Wales is getting behind this and we're going to fund it and we're going to roll it out and this is what it's going to look like. It's very heavily, you know, reliant on other organisations and corporates. Mm. What about doing things like uh, removing subsidies for uh, sort of uh, imports and all the dumb cars that we get? Like we get, <laughs> we, we literally get the worst cars in the world sent here because of our oh, fuel standards. And... Exactly. I had a really, really um, quite obnoxious argument with my father about that just the other day that, you know, we because we had such a thriving, um, you know, car manufacturing industry in Australia, we had all these tariffs and imports and blah, 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 blah. And yet, yeah, it hasn't been manufacturing for donkeys and uh, none of that really got rolled back. So, mm. you know, there's still a lot of holes in our national and statewide car strategy. Mm. You know, get on it, people. Mm. But um, robocars, though, um, we're looking to do something around that, I believe. I'm always excited about robocars. Um, when you can sort of pry it out of the, the claws of um, government, pseudo-government organisations and actually look at what's going on in the world, um, a company called Applied EV. So these, this is an Aussie company and they're an autonomous vehicle company. So 
self-driving, for want of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, they've just announced um, a pretty substantial partnership with a UK company called Oxbotica to basically flesh out and finalise its autonomous car. So... Um, sort of Mark 1 was developed and built in Australia, um, but it was tested overseas. And essentially what Applied EV is doing with this robo-delivery car is it's a modular vehicle. So it almost looks like um, a robust, glorified shopping cart of sorts. Um, and you can use it for just about anything, but they think it'll be, you know, a delivery thing. Um, but the modular piece is really key. So companies using them will actually be able to add and remove components as they need to, you know, depending on what they're delivering, depending on weather conditions, depending on a whole bunch of different things. So um, that's basically been given a bunch of cash to, you know, turn into a marketable commercial thing, which would be pretty cool, you know, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. Um, no release date has been set yet, but um, be interesting to see that one roll out. Definitely. How do you both feel about being in an autonomous car? I'm not comfortable with it yet. I'm not comfortable with them being on the roads yet. Um, Is yet the operative term? Oh, look, who knows? <laughs> I'm, I'm also not optimistic, or not, no, not optimistic is not the right word. I just don't think that it's going to reach a critical mass of public acceptance for a very, very long time. Mm. It's going to take a lot. Um, it'll, I, I think it would almost be like it would need to be one of those switchovers. So, like, you remember, like, I don't know, you probably don't remember, but in the 70s, um, when Sweden, for example, changed from driving on the left to driving on the right, they just stopped. Everyone had, they had a whole plan. They were telling you know people about it for months, and you know on the on the designated date and time, everyone had to pull over and then get out of their car and wait for everything to stop, and then slowly cross over, and then all of a sudden they were driving the opposite side of the road. Yeah. I think that's probably what we're going to need to do. Surely for you do that cars. at four a.m. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do do that at four a.m. But like everyone stops doing, but everyone wants to be part of the experience, so they're all awake at four a.m. What I'm saying is that I think if we're going to be going to autonomous self driving cars, but you're going to have to do it all in one hit. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good point because um, I've, I've spent a little bit of time lurking the hallways of, um, you know, a university that's got a really great big lab here, you know, here in Melbourne in Carlton. And that's so I'm pretty across the technology and it's darn cool. But what it's super reliant on sensors and stuff. It's not just, you know, a vehicle brain going, going north down the road. It's there's, you know, sensors all over the place so it can read what's happening and see what's happening and respond. Um, so it's really cool technology. However, People are idiots. Mm. And we know from jaywalkers to bad drivers to drug-affected or drunk drivers, all that kind of stuff, the human element is the key piece. So, um, you know, the best laid algorithm could come undone by, you know, an ill-placed maniac on the road. And I I guess for me personally, that's that's what needs to be ironed out and it never will be. Mm, No. (laughs) Maybe we need, like, separate roads with self-driving cars and maybe those cars should be connected in some way, like from front to back to front to back. And maybe they should stop at designated spaces where people are standing and oh, get into them. Do you, you see what I'm going invent, You yeah. invented trains. I invented trains. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Adelaide's public transport system with its <laughs> special bus track oh, thing, yeah, they're which cool. is still a thing. That's still um, a thing. Yeah, they, they had to separate that out <laughs> in the city of churches and shallow graves. So... <laughs> Speaking of things that have been uh, separated out, uh, China has been uh, accused of weaponizing its COVID tracker app um, uh, in recent reports from uh, New York Times and uh, a few other sources. Um, 
remember COVID, uh, that thing that uh, we got what? rid of just before the election, <laughs> but uh, apparently it's still going and um, and, and kicking on. But um, yeah, China um, is, is still um, trying to get that um, zero COVID um, uh, situation in, in some cities and um, still sort of riding it pretty hard. But um, yeah, Chinese citizens have accused authorities of using the uh, COVID-19 tracker app, um, which is run by, um, I think, Ali Wallet, which is, um, or Alipay, which is a, oh, a popular wallet right. app. Um, so the way it works there is you get um, issued a QR code, a green, yellow, or red QR code based on your health status, and then you need to use these at, at various points um, for purchases and, and entering venues and, and so forth. But um, from day one, this um, data was actually shared with um, uh, law enforcement authorities, and citizens have actually found that their health status has changed from green to, to yellow or red with no cause. So um, people are talking about getting on a train from a place where there was no COVID. They had no COVID going to a place also where there was no COVID, getting off the train and being detained and finding out that their uh, QR code had turned to red or to yellow or what have you. Um, so, yeah, um, Yikes. A, a bit alarming. Um, um, uh, um, uh, Sort of people people speaking on behalf of um, digital freedoms and and just uh, sort of standard human rights um, pointed out that it would be very easy to have a proxy form of social control just by being able to do this yeah. and say you've actually got COVID we're going to have to isolate you or, or sort of you know um, put you in hospital for a for a day or, or what have you um, and it seems like that may be happening um, so it's something to uh, keep an eye on um, in China at the moment but yeah jeez you're listening to a triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. There was a, a kerfuffle uh, last week in uh, California where one of Google's uh, engineers uh, pointed out that he was having a rather stimulating conversation with a piece of software um, and did flag that we were fast approaching the, the singularity um, for show boffins, um, but maybe that is not the case. Um, nevertheless, we were alarmed and we loaded up with doctors. Um, closest doctor, Dr. Simon Coughlin, is now with us. Um, he's from Melbourne University um, with a particular... Um, leaning towards uh, ethics and philosophy. And we want to have a chat about um, this particular piece of technology, but are we asking the right questions? So thanks for coming in, Simon, and, and making time tonight. No problem. It's great to be here. Um, so what actually happened with this chatbot? What, what did people get alarmed about? What, what's the source of the kerfuffle? Yeah, it certainly grabbed the attention of the world's media, didn't it? Um, well, this, um, this engineer from Google called Blake Lemoyne, um, uh, allegedly, well, he reported um, that the, he thought that this um, this chatbot, uh, chatbot designed by Google, had actually become sentient uh, and self-aware, and um, and because he thought this, he thought that the robot or the chatbot rather should be um, given certain rights, and so he arranged, um, allegedly, at the, uh, the the instigation of the chatbot, to have an attorney. To um, to represent the chatbot uh, and defend its rights. Oh, that's unfortunate. The first someone realizes that you're conscious and get the lawyers on. <laughs> you to get you. a lawyer. <laughs> Respect to the lawyers out there tonight. Um, yes, yeah. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but um, but certainly that's that's a measure of how seriously this person took um, the um, the the sentience of this um, of this chatbot. Mm. Was there, um, how, does, how does one kind of um, apply test or, or reach that kind of conclusion? Is there some kind of Turing test or, or, or kind of is it more subjective? 
Yeah. How, how would you go about that? In this case, um, the engineer, Blake Lemoyne, um, thought that the chatbot had acquired a level of intelligence which was similar to a child, uh, a seven- or eight-year-old child. Um, and he, um, he thought that, um, that therefore, it, it deserved um, protection, uh, and especially since the robot or the chatbot was asking uh, or expressing fears about being switched off and fears about dying. Um, so it was, the, it was the, the nature of the conversation um, that uh, apparently convinced this person that the chatbot had achieved a level of uh, self-awareness and feeling. Mm. Um, so if you like, it was kind of like a Turing test because, um, you know, the Turing test being uh, a test devised by Alan Turing many years ago um, that says if, if, you, um, if you're um, having a conversation with uh, something on the other side of a screen which you can't see and that thing, whatever it is, could be a machine, um, convinces you that it could be a person, uh, then it's achieved human intelligence or human thinking and understanding. And so you could say in this case there was kind of, it kind of um, was true that the, the robot or the chatbot had passed the Turing test as far as Blake Lemoyne was concerned. Mm. And um, it's, it's not unusual, though, in, in your piece, um, one of the um, University of Melbourne publications, you talked about chatbots going back even sort of 60 years um, have kind of um, convinced their makers that they've reached a, a certain level of intelligence or, or, or awareness. Is, is one of the failings here that um, we're assessing whether it's intelligent or not? Um, I mean, that's an obvious kind of um, flaw in the... Nothing there. I would yes, suggest. yes. Well, that's interesting actually, because one of the things that the engineer said was that this was not quite a human intelligence; uh, that it was uh, somewhat of an alien intelligence, inhuman in some, or non-human in some ways, but human in other ways. Uh, yes, you could you could raise that possibility whether humans are, are the ones who can make these sort of judgments. Um, however, that's what the Turing test relies upon, and um, at the end of the day, we've only got our own uh, judgments to go by. Mm. Um, so, so again, if, if we um, converse with uh, an intelligence, an artificial intelligence, and we can't distinguish what it says um, from a human being, then, um, then according to some people at least, we should regard it as having achieved human-level intelligence. Mm. Uh, and do, do you, as an ethicist, um, do you... Um... What, what was your response to that um, engineer's actions there where we need to afford it rights and respect and, um, you know, treat it as we would treat any other colleague in, in the room? Um, I'm just curious. Like, yes. from, from your worldview, yes. what, what, what was that like for you? Right. Well, I mean, he, yeah, he said that he thought the chatbot was a fellow co-worker rather than a machine or a tool, which, mm. they, which they were using. Uh, and he even asked whether... Uh, with, asked of the chatbot whether they could have permission to look into its neural structures to see um, to see what was going on inside it, because it's a very complicated kind of um, neural network. Mm. Um, well, my response, I guess, is probably similar to a lot of people, and who thought that um, that this person was making a mistake in calling the chatbot uh, sentient. And in fact, um, that was um, a very strong opinion amongst not only amongst Google uh, and the people who who run Google, uh, but amongst members of the the public and the media. Um, and and you know one of the one of the um, things which were pointed out uh, in opposition to the idea that this 
this chatbot might have achieved sentience or feeling or self-awareness um, was that it was simply a, a, a language processing device. It was a language predictor. So what, what happened was it was trained on uh, millions of sentences uh, and learnt over time to uh, distinguish intelligible replies from non-intelligible replies or uninteresting replies. Um, so um, so the, the criticism here made of Blake Lemoyne, the engineer, was that he was confusing real intelligence uh, with a simple language prediction. Well, not so simple, it's actually really complicated. But at the end of the day, it's just a, a predictive tool that searches for patterns and finds patterns in the kinds of things that human beings have said online. Um, and so it's trawling through all these conversations and dialogue that humans have had and drawing out of that um, certain kinds of um, sentences which appear to make sense. Mm. I'm kind of fascinated by... Um the, I guess the instinct to immediately appoint a lawyer to protect its rights and all the rest of it, because just a week ago, um, a test case um, that happened in New York, which was really interesting, around Happy the Elephant, who's been resident at the Bronx Zoo since the 1970s, and a not-for-profit group had challenged that in the state, you know, highest court to say, well you know, Happy the Elephant is highly intelligent and has feelings and all the rest of it. Let's go for human rights so that we can take future legal action and, you know, move her to sanctuaries and all that sort of stuff. And that would have had huge uh, precedent ripple-ons and all that kind of thing. And it did get knocked back, I think, three to two or, you know, roughly thereabouts. But I'm sort of fascinated um, about what your take on the first instinct being, let's get a lawyer on it and um, give some rights, as opposed to actually cracking open and go, well, how... Just how clever is this thing? Yes, and what you've raised there is a quite an interesting comparison between uh, a non-human animal mm. and um, an artificial intelligence, which is, of course, not made of biological material. Um, it doesn't have a, a, a brain like an elephant has or a human has, um, and it doesn't have a body like like an elephant has, um, a, an expressive body. So, that, so there are some big differences between them, but it's interesting that, yes, in the case of um, Happy the Elephant, um, that uh, a number of lawyers and philosophers and scientists have um, uh, argued to the court that the elephant is sufficiently intelligent and autonomous uh, and feeling, mm. um, that it deserves not to be um, kept in captivity uh, in, in a way that, that causes it to suffer. Um, so here, I mean, you can like a lot turns on, of course, whether you think a, an artificial intelligence is that kind of being that feels, um, can suffer, and um, can think and have relationships. Mm. Uh, and in the case of uh, the chatbot, uh, Google's chatbot Lambda, it's called. Um, most people, I think, would think at this point that it is not anything like a human being or indeed an elephant. Mm. Is is that not the um, the thing that we are watching out for though? That um, not necessarily just AI, but but um, machine learning is teaching itself and teaching itself new things that we're not aware of. We kind of set the top spinning and we don't know where the top goes. Um, so it's hard to know where this is actually going to come from. And maybe Google's response is quite legitimate. You know, as as you said, like, hey, it's just you know, it's just looking up um, looking up results and giving us you know another result. Um, is it? Uh, do, 
can we safely say that um, it's not going to turn up from places like this or should we be kind of, you know, um, looking with soft eyes at uh, a lot of these um, uh, types of programs going, we're not entirely sure what's what's kind of happening here. Uh, I'm interested in your response to that. We, we can then move on to the, um, there are actually a lot of other conversations to have. It's not so much about, you know, is it sentient or not just yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think, so even, even some of the... Um, uh, the people who run Google, the vice president of Google, has talked about the possibility of um, machine intelligence uh, in terms of machines actually acquiring something like mm. that, like a human a level of understanding. Um, they just think at this point in time this um, particular kind of language predictor is just not good enough. It's just not there yet. Uh, and, and, in fact, you could raise um, uh, sort of sceptical questions about does what it's, is what it's saying actually meaningful coherent? Um, does it change uh, when it claims to have read Les Miserables? Did it actually read Les Miserables? Mm. Um, uh, when it claims to be scared of death, does it know what death is? And those sorts of questions. Mm. So, um, yes, I think it... So uh, while, while a lot of artificial intelligence researchers would say that this particular chatbot hasn't achieved human sentience or animal mm. sentience, um, there are still a number of people who think that, that this will happen. Um, and uh, and this kind of, this this episode has raised that the question of whether um, all that's required is a, um, a a chatbot that can reproduce human language and engage in conversation with human beings in a coherent kind of way and in a way that makes sense. So there's not saying a whole lot of false or meaningless things, uh, but it's actually um, uh, it's actually coherent in its personality. Uh, it doesn't change on a daily basis. Uh, it has a memory and so on. So uh, some people would say once you've reached that level of coherence, um, then you've got a genuine intelligence mm. and not just something that predicts language. Mm. But other people would say that's not enough. Other people would say that, uh, and there have been some famous philosophical arguments about this, that um, you need to have more than just the ability to pass the Turing test. Uh, and, and one of the biggest, argue, I mean, one of the most prominent arguments, I guess, is that you need to have some sort of body, uh, and that could be a biological uh, body for some for some individuals or some philosophers and others, but not for not for other philosophers who think you don't need to have a biological body, but you might need to have something like a robotic body. Interesting. Um, your uh, your point um, in your in your recent piece was that um, there are other things to be concerned about beyond um, you know these um, uh, bits of code um, being intelligent or not. Are the ethics of their interactions with with humans who are perhaps not aware of what kind of design is is behind the the interaction that they're having? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are chatbots um, uh, all around us actually online um, when we. Uh, do banking, uh, when we engage with telecommunication services and businesses, chatbots often pop up on the screen and try and engage us in, in dialogue. Um, sometimes it's not clear when that happens that um, what you're talking to is a chatbot. Uh, so it's not always made entirely clear to everybody that um, it's not another person they're talking to um, rather than a simple, in this kind of case, a rather simple chatbot, unlike Google's um, very fancy one. 
And um, and so if a person who's who's engaging in online uh, services or, or transactions thinks that they're talking to a real person, then there could be a problem. Uh, and and perhaps we we should be thinking that um, that companies who use these kinds of chatbots should make that clear um, that who they're engaging with is is in fact a machine, uh, a rather simple kind of chatbot, and then um, and then refer you to a human being if you'd if you'd rather talk to one uh, rather than talking to the uh, to the chatbot. Mm. Um, I think one of the, so one of the differences with with this is that that um, and the Google case uh, the engineer is that the engineer knew exactly how the chatbot worked. You know he was a, uh, an expert in it, and um, he knew it was an artificial uh, neural network, a deep learning system, uh, and not a human being. Um, whereas uh, the kind of chatbots we encounter online, um, it's just often not clear to the consumer. Um, that they're talking to uh, essentially a, um, uh, a computer. Oh, because there's such a massive difference between your average punter running into trouble with their internet banking versus a Google engineer who's absolutely expert in it, lives and breathes the system, pricking the ears up and going, holy dooly. Exactly. Huge difference, yeah. There's a huge difference. So, yeah. And one of the other questions that, that we um, are looking at is with these chatbots that you might talk about, talk to or, or try and get um, uh, some information uh, from uh, when, you're, when you're doing your banking or whatever online, is, um, is that they're collecting data about us. Um, or at least they could be. And um, so it's possible that the whole dialogue that we've had with the, the chatbot um, has been collected and stored somewhere and will be used for some other purpose. So I think it's probably generally the case that the consumer doesn't doesn't know that mm-hmm. um, that um, they the information that they're um, providing, uh, and it could sometimes be personal information, uh, could be could be used in other ways that they don't know about. If uh, people out there are curious about this and the development of, of sort of intelligence in this space, are there any kind of uh, books or films or things that you'd sort of recommend people check out or how can Scott you keep it. an eye on it? <laughs> <laughs> Can't go past uh, Terminator. Yeah, if you're talking about the singularity and um, a robot that achieves human-level uh, intelligence and then rapidly accelerates to superhuman intelligence. So, I mean, I didn't realise the chatbots looked like that. I thought they were just little scripts of things, but... Yes. They're, they're chasing us down the highway and stuff like that. I'll, I'll make sure to re- treat the movement <laughs> well, respectfully the next time. Angle. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you, if you got a super intelligent AI, um, presumably it would be smart enough to work out how to build robots and other devices. Um, and if it had a, um, a malevolent, malevolent intention, to use it against us. Um, so I guess I mean, it's actually a serious um, line of thought and research at the moment that um, people are looking at how do we make sure that if, a, if an AI system achieves superhuman intelligence that it doesn't, um, doesn't injure or um, try and kill, kill off humanity. We will break out the uh, James Cameron DVDs um, later tonight <laughs> for sure. Um, Dr Simon Kong, thanks uh, very much for coming in and joining us on the show. Thanks very much. It was great fun. Triple R. It is 7.41. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R. I hope you're having a good night and you've got your extra thick socks on uh, if you're in Melbourne, um, maybe the flannels. Um, we are now joined uh, over the sound power by uh, Daniel Levi from uh, the AUWU, um, which we will go into, and also Tess O'Brien to have a chat about 
Peabass um, is probably a better name for it, but um, I don't know. We'll get into that as well. It's the <laughs> points-based activation activation system um, relating to Centrelink and to, and to benefits. And there is a, a bit of generational trauma around um, how Centrelink um, uh, entitlements work. Um, so we're all a little bit tender about how this might work. Um, so, Daniel and Tess, thanks for taking time out of your night tonight to have a, a chat to us. Thanks for having us on. Uh, yeah, P- thank, uh, great to be here. Thank you. Daniel Tess, PBAS. Are, are we saying it right? What, what is PBAS? Um, yeah, so the points-based activation system is going to uh, replace mutual obligations for um, Job Active, which is transitioning to Workforce Australia. So um, there's going to be two components, uh, two major components to Workforce Australia. One will be online employment services and the other will be enhanced services, which is with one of those typical providers people um, have already come to hate. Um, The difference, uh, major difference will now be is that everyone um, will be logging their um, activities in an online portal um, and they've... um, taken a page straight out of Black Mirror and gamified it with points, which we think is just um, quite uh, basically offensive to human decency. Um, the intersections uh, with um, RoboDebt are that they're going to do automated decision-making on whether your payments get suspended. Um, that's that's right off the bat. And then we don't know if they're going to go back over time and, and do automatic audits of, of obligations and then um, potentially raise that, oh, you weren't entitled to have your payment at that time. We fear it. Um, we have no reason to trust uh, that this government wouldn't do that. Um, they're the ones who brought in automated data matching. People forget that. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're are quite um, scared of, of, of what uh, PBAS will mean. For, for people who don't know the, the backstory here for um, mutual obligation and, and, and even robo-debt and so forth, what, what's, um, uh, what are the cliff notes for the, the, the context um, preceding PBAS? Good question. So um, until the 90s, um, well, 80s really, but it's end of, end of, in mid, midway through the 1980s, the Commonwealth Employment Service um, started to get hacked away at by the Hawke-Keating government. It used to be that public servants would, if you were unemployed, they would help you find work um, to um, guarantee full employment. That would be their, their role in their job. Um, about in, in the 80s, the um, Hawke-Keating government um, wants to introduce something called New Start, where they want to um, introduce a lot more activation testing to make sure that people are spinning around nicely on the hamster wheel. Um in, in about, um, I'm just going to 91. interject real quick to say yeah, that that's also around about when the federal government removed the um, aim towards full employment as a, as a basic standard for government policy as well. It used Great to point. be that our federal policy was everybody should be employed, but that was disposed of as part of the like neoliberalism shift on the basis that there was some quote-unquote natural level of unemployment, which was basically a, an instrument they 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 term it they being economists now phrase it in terms of like what is it non inflationary level of unemployment basically a level of unemployment which means that workers don't have so much power that they can drive for wage increase that would push up inflation is the the schema that is used here gotcha and and the wider context is important because this is a policy setting that keeps wages low quite deliberately um, the people are forced to choose between um, running the hamster wheel. Um, and being on poverty payments or um, taking a low-paid job and being at the mercy of a boss who knows that. 
Um, so what they found was, um, and this is quite important, um, Commonwealth employees, public servants, were not willing to punish people who weren't meeting arbitrary mutual obligations. So that's when they had the next brainwave, which was, okay, well, we know a set of people who will, the private market. So they... Um, hacked away at the um, Commonwealth Employment Service. They privatised a bunch of it. Howard came in to finish the job, completely abolished the Commonwealth Employment Service, um, outsourced the whole thing. And um, one of the more recent invention, inventions have been now Centrelink itself doesn't even enforce the mutual obligation suspensions. The providers do that. So um, people are at the mercy of these private providers who don't care about them. They care about their outcome payments from their contracts. And it's um, just just an awful system that harms people and doesn't actually lead to employment outcomes. So, so, so we've talked about the, the kind of historical context to get a basis in it. What is this points system purporting to do in terms of, like, what are they saying it's going to fix? Okay, so if you don't mind, I'll take this one. Go for that. So, yeah, yeah, you know when. So, well, I don't know about that, but I could mm-hmm. perhaps express it in a more numerical fashion. So yes. what you've got in your job active plan or your job plan with Centrelink and your job provider at the moment is some amount of stuff that you are expected to do to say, yes, here I am, I'm trying to get a job in the ways that Centrelink and the job service providers recognize that it's important to make that kind of distinction. But job service providers have quite a lot of discretion as to what they can tick off as as a person doing enough. So your classic example at the moment is that you will be asked to apply for 20 jobs per month, which if you're in a capital city may not be particularly arduous. If you're in a remote area, could be impossible. So, 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 sorry. <laughs> so there's a bit of flexibility within that for the job service provider. So they may be able to say, well, actually, you don't have to do a full 20 this month. We can reduce that for you for the circumstances around you. Or maybe you're doing like full-time work for the doll, which is its own kind of nightmare situation, but does exist. And they say, okay, yep, that's all good. You've done your work for the doll for this month. You don't have to do other stuff on top. That's fine. And there's other stuff that people have been able to do, but that discretion given to the job service provider has been quite inconsistent. So on some level, there is an argument for standardizing that. Fair enough. But... The points-based system, as it is being implemented, basically gives you a list of different things that you can do, stuff like uh, work for the doll, uh, employment training, getting certificates. One of the examples given is like your white card for construction or a um, forklift license or something like that. Even a driver's license is listed here. And for each of these activities, you get some amount of points. You have an amount of points that you have to accrue over the course of a month in order to get paid. So it is to some extent, a standardization of the existing system. The online component is somewhat separate to that. That's basically just the interface that people have. But the points-based system itself is kind of a way of measuring, quote-unquote, what people do over the course of a month to earn, quote-unquote, their unemployment payments. There are kind of problems with that. So one of the biggest ones that immediately leapt out to me when I saw this is that the points aren't particularly consistent with the actual time and effort involved in many of the activities. So the kind of one at the top of the list, because it's the one that you get the most points for doing, is relocating to take up a job, which gets you 100 points. 
Now, your standard number of points that you have to get per month is 100 points. So if you relocate for a job, that's your month uh, sort of point requirement done. Hopefully you get the job. If you don't get the job, you are now relocated and stuck. Great, great for shearers, but not so much for the rest of us, really. Yeah, right. And, and of course, I mean, with that one, the big question is, like, how long does it take? I mean, relocating is a big task, and you need resources to do it. So that's one sort of example. Another, if we come back to our classic 20 job applications a month, each of those job applications will net you five points. So that 20 job applications will be enough for you to do for the month. Let's go back to the uh, full-time work for the doll. Full-time work for the doll is no longer enough to get you your full points requirement. Full-time work for the doll now gets you 80 points if you do it for four weeks, and you need 100 points to get paid. So we're already seeing a transition where people who would have had their mutual obligations fulfilled by something prior to this change are now being asked to do more. So and I guess is that um, theory going that, okay, you get your 80 points for doing um, a full-time work with a doll, we still expect you to apply for multiple jobs and do yeah. X, Y, Z on top of. Yep. And all of those things come with a time cost as well. Like, it's hard. One of the things that we're doing with AWU at the moment is trying to work out a more consistent metric than these points, which is based on how long does it take you to earn a point for each of these activities. We've Some of it comes down to like an estimation process because you can't say, oh, a job applying for a job takes 20 minutes because not all job applications take 20 minutes. Or so there's like, we have to go through a bit of an adjustment process for that. But what we are kind of trying to build is a points per hour metric for each of these activities. So we can at least say to people, if they wind up stuck in this system, hey, here is how you can kind of optimize your time in order to get like these points more efficiently. Because uh, as far as we can tell, and boy, has the communication been bad, there's not a hell of a lot of guidance for people in this system as to what they should be doing. They just kind of stuck in there, said, hey, this is a point-based system. Here's your target. Go for your life. It, um, it suggests um, with having points, uh, it- you know, the obvious sort of overages towards you know incentivizing and measurement and, and uh, are there is there um, is there something around winners losers sort of rising to the top of the pile is there you know as soon as I hear gamifying which was mentioned in in Ash's um, post on medium I hear um, leaderboards um, special rewards level ups all of that kind of jazz um, do we know anything about sort of comparison to, to you know, how, how your, um, you know, uh, fellow Australians are doing or what, what's to be expected of you or social pressure or bandwagon effect or all, all of that kind of um, Well, the short answer is it, we don't know. Mm, yeah. The slightly longer answer is... It wouldn't surprise is, me if they did that. Uh, well, there's a privacy concern there. And I think that because there's a privacy concern, you wouldn't see leaderboards or you wouldn't see direct comparisons. Mm. Um, mm. You, well, we, we just don't know because 
as I said, the communication has been basically non-existent. Like mm -hmm. we did a survey of uh, like 350 people and 42% that said that they had, had not at all been contacted or told anything about where they'd be going into in July. So yeah, communication has been bad, but I'm not sure they'll do that sort of thing. You might see something around like what sort of activities are people doing, mm. which is probably not going mm. to be necessarily real examples, but they may give examples of job plan composition, sorry, points compositions, right? Mm. So here is your pretend or real person who has done this sort of list of activities to get their 100 points. Mm. If people are kind of interested or, or uh, you know concerned as 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 we are about um, about this new scheme, where can they find out more about it? Uh, obviously, the, there has been a, a lack of information and communication. Great question. Um, we we ourselves have been trying to find out a lot more about this system. We've been stonewalled by the department. We sent in a fifty-page submission um, on concerns that we have that must have promptly gone in the bin because they cancelled a stakeholder meeting we had 18 minutes after we sent the submission. The thing is, and this is what's really um, brutal and awful about the department's communication strategy that basically doesn't seem to exist, is there's supposed to be proper guides on how everything will work, and that hasn't been fully released yet. So this system that's coming in, we know quite a bit about the what, but almost nothing about the how. And that alone is pretty terrifying, and people have only got one month to figure it out before the payment penalties come in, which will strip them of their livelihood. Mm. So, you know, our, our key demand from Tony Burke, if he's listening, um, is please at least extend that to 90 days while you um, review this incredible eyesore of a program. Um, but, yeah, like that's a big problem that you've hit on is actually how much we don't know and the department is not yet willing to reveal. Yeah. And also on top of that, if it is like released, finding that information can be quite difficult. Yeah, navigating government, yeah. navigating government websites is hard. MyGov is an absolute nightmare, and the Centrelink system online has not been particularly better. And you have to have a certain level of, I guess, like digital literacy in order to find the information for whether or not you're going to get paid this month. So yeah. there's additional like structural problems here which have not been addressed. And even like the government's own trials of these systems acknowledged that these structural problems were there, but they're still going ahead with it. So, so just to um, bring it back to the um, the main things that people can do who are listening and want more information, um, if you can um, make use of it, um, jobsearch.gov.au does have transition to Workforce Australia information. You should have received a communication by now from the government about where you'll be placed. Um, sadly, we are still getting reports that people have not. Um, if you have any outstanding queries, um, we strongly encourage you to get in touch um, with the advocacy team. You can go to auwu.org.au and click the links to advocacy and get in touch with us. And uh, we'll be uh, providing as regular updates as we can about information as we get it. Absolutely. Uh, we had a briefing today. We've got slides uh, that will be up on the website that people can uh, look at to see our best up-to-date information. Definitely worth keeping on it. Uh, Daniel Levy from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and Tess O'Brien, Statistics Consultant. Thank you both very much for your time to speak to us about this very important issue. Thanks Thank for having us on. Triple R.
So in terms of what's afoot at the moment, there's a really cool event on called Games Technical Production with Elizabeth Blythe. It's a two-part event running over two Friday afternoon, uh, evening sorry, from the 24th of June. Um, so Games Production Expert and Lead Development Director of EA Fire Monkeys, Elizabeth, will be sharing her insights on how to become successful in the games production industry. It's at um, Acme in Southbank and tickets are via Eventbrite. NDC Melbourne 2022 is on right now. Today is day three of the five-day event for software developers. Uh, it is at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Uh, everything from JavaScript to US to texting to Python, whole lot more. Uh, you can still go down uh, if you get ticked via Eventbrite. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff for the next three days. The last few days are always the business end of any kind of conference anyway, so it's just all <laughs> filler at the front. Um, thank you very much to our guests this evening, uh, Dr. Simon Coughlin of University of Melbourne, also to Tess and Daniel, who we just heard from. Um, Elizabeth McCarthy, Carrie Smith, thank you very much for um, making it sound excellent uh, in front of the mics. We've been bought into it. We'll be back next week with some different humans. Um, stay groovy. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.